All right, so most of you know that we have been, for the last uh, couple months or so, going through um, kind of the, the, the whole undergirding and the reason that we are a contemplative body and, and we have been studying the mystics. And on Wednesday night, we actually went through six mystics that we chose um, throughout history. And we started with Brother Lawrence, who was a 17th century French monk. And then we actually had Julian of Norwich join us. Now, she looked a lot like Nina, but she was dressed like Julian of Norwich. And she told us in first person uh, what she was about, what you know, circumstances in her life drove her to, to seek the kind of intimacy with God that is the hallmark of the contemplative or the mystic. And then we, had, we talked about Catherine of Siena, and we talked about uh, Thomas Merton, who was the only 20th century uh, contemplative in the bunch. And then we were joined by Meister Eckhart, who looked a lot like Doug, but, uh, but was dressed in the, in the garb of the day. And he told us about his journey and about his particular way of looking at, uh, at life and contemplative connection with God. And then we were joined by Francis of Assisi, who is one of my all-time favorites. And if you know anything about Francis, he was 13th century, and he, was, uh, he called himself and his followers God's jugglers. So how can you not like someone like that? He actually showed up with us. He looked a lot like, well... He looked a lot like that. So would you welcome Francis of Assisi, please? I think I got that one. You got that one? Yes. Thank you. It's been 800 years since I stepped foot on this world. So thank you for welcoming me back. Hi, my name's Francis. Good morning. Wow. Dave, thanks for inviting me here. It's nice to get out of heaven once in a while. But not that nice. Uh, no, you know, it's going to be a fun morning. And, I'm, you know, just trying to, uh, to think how best to, uh, to share my life with you. And I think uh, what, where I really want to start is just kind of a, an overview of, of things that, uh, that I feel like set me apart, uh, things that were critically important to me, give you a sense of who I am, and then we'll kind of run through the biography and, and my life and, and the, the events, the things that happened, uh, and so on and so forth that um, took me to where I ended up. Um, you know, and first of all, let me just say this. You, I'm fascinated. You know, last night I was able to get on the Internet, and it's something I haven't done, you know, ever, and a pretty amazing thing. And I was looking back at a lot of the quotes that are attributed to me, a lot of the stories that are attributed to me. And, you know, I can honestly tell you that after 800 years, I really don't remember if I said all those things or did all those things. But this morning I'm going to try and present and, uh, and share with you things that, you know, either I'm very sure that, that I did say while I was here or uh, things that definitely reflect me very well. You know, i just give you an example. There's a very famous prayer um, that is attributed to me. It's called the St. Francis Prayer. Um, and and that, actually, that prayer was written in the 1900s. And, uh, but it's attributed to me, and it's called the St. Francis Prayer. But I am going to close with that today because it so accurately reflects my heart and my love and, and what I 
what I really uh, think life is about and what I was trying to accomplish here. So anyway, just uh, just a little disclaimer. You know, 800 years is a long time, and uh, you know, so so if uh, all the quotes are not exactly mine, at least we'll talk about the ones that um, that I really feel comfortable with. I got to say this: I'm not at all thrilled with the whole saint thing. You know, I don't know whose bright idea that. Actually, I do know whose bright idea that was. It was the Pope at the time that uh, that made me a saint two years after my death. Uh, you know, I spent my life trying to be humble. I spent my life believing in the way of poverty, believing in a way of humility, trying to emulate Jesus any and every way I could. That really was what I was all about. I, uh, I just wanted to reflect exactly what he reflected, to live exactly what he lived. And that was what I felt like my calling was. And so every bit of it, even, even the patches on my tunic... You know, <laughs> this is a brand new outfit. Uh, but you know, I, I made I made a lot of my followers sew patches even on their new uh, robes because it's a way to take a, take away even the pride of something as small as a brand new robe. You know, the patches help us to uh, to find an affinity for and a oneness with uh, the poorest of the poor. You know, I'm, I'm not better than anyone. I'm not better than, you know, or superior to or anything, you know. And this is, this is really what, um, what my order was about, what, uh, what I was trying to accomplish, was just finding a place of total humility, uh, total poverty, and total connection with God. Uh, nature played a huge part in this, you know. And I've got to tell you, for me... I don't know how many people in here have a creative side. How many of you uh, have painted a painting or written a poem or written a song or performed a song or done something creative uh, and, and actually created something of your own? Maybe photo- photography. How many of you in some way have participated in the arts and have created something? So my question to you is this. Do you feel that as you come back later and look at that song or that poem or that picture uh, or that painting, do you feel that there's a piece of you invested in it? Do you feel that you leave a piece of yourself inside of that creation? See, to me, that's exactly what God did with nature. Uh, Not only did he create us, but he created every living creature and I can't walk through nature without seeing his face. I can't walk through the countryside without seeing evidence of his handiwork and feeling a connection with him. And, you know, that's just kind of who I am, what I am. That's what uh, drew me to God, and that's what, uh, that's what keeps my faith alive, is, uh, is that sense of connection, that, that sense of oneness, um, and, and actually seeing him. You know, i got to tell you, I am no scholar. Um, you know, Dave was telling you about the study of different uh, different people from my time period that you guys were doing. And, uh, you know, Meister Eckhart, now that was a scholar. You know, he was a theologian. He was someone who used words and books and, and writings to, uh, to convey. Uh, I was a very simple man, 
and I was happy to be a very simple man. Um, I was not a book person. You know, the Bible was my book. I found a lot of comfort there. I found my direction there. I found everything that I needed there. Uh, but I was not a scholar in that sense of the word. And, you know, so I would tell you that uh, my journey was very much experiential as opposed to intellectual. And, uh, you know, we all bring what we have to the table. But just, uh, you know, in, in kind of wrapping this part up, you know, giving you a sense of who I am, um, I am a real person. I am a human. I am a human with all the positives and all the negatives that go along with it. I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things I wish I could undo. I, uh, even as I was beginning to chase God, and I'll, I'll share some of the stories as uh, we walk through my life, but even as I was beginning to chase God, I'm amazed at um, how far afield I was in, uh, in the way I was attempting to do it. Um, you know, I, I just, I'm not a saint. I'm, I'm a human. I'm a person. Um, but it's okay um, because that's what we have to work with. It's who we are. So, you know, I was pleased to take my humanity and my brokenness and, uh, you know, my struggles and my attempts and, uh, and let them move me um, uh, into a place of connection and into a place where, wow, I actually did have the opportunity to, uh, to make a difference, I do believe. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. So, all right, my story. First of all, my real name is Giovanni. Uh, it's not Francis. My mom baptized me while Dad was away uh, in France on a business trip. She baptized me Giovanni di Pietro di uh, Bernardone because uh, my dad's name was Pietro di Bernardone. So I am uh, Giovanni of Pietro. And uh, when Dad came back from France, he was so thrilled with the way his business venture is, had gone that he started calling me Francesco which means little Frenchman. And Francesco stuck and eventually became Francis. But that's how I became Francis, was uh, actually through a nickname, not through uh, my real name. Um, I was born in 1181 or 1182, uh, not real sure. I was very young at the time. Um, you know, and records were not quite as, uh, as, as good as they are today. But I was born somewhere around 1181 or 1182, end of 1181, first of 1182. And only was uh, on this earth for 44 years. Uh, I died in 1226, so I wasn't around for a long, long time. Uh, felt like a long time, but, uh, but it was really only a pretty short period of time. But I grew up, uh, man, I grew up in a very wealthy family, an incredibly wealthy family. Uh, it's amazing how privileged I was. Um, you know, my dad was a silk merchant and, and, uh, and a fabric merchant. And just he had, he had really established a very good business and, uh, and just we were, we were very well-to-do. And I loved it. Um, I played, I partied, I got to be that rich kid that had everything, that did everything. I chased the ladies, and the ladies liked being chased. And, uh, you know, because I was handsome and fun and gallant and witty and all of those things, and I had a lot of money. 
and uh, came from a great family. So it was a wonderful time to be me. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's what my childhood was, and that's what my teen years were. You know, it was just me having fun at life and trying to find life. Now, I can tell you this, there, was, there were moments in my youth, moments in, especially in my teen years, where I began to be dissatisfied. I began to recognize that something was missing. Uh, began to recognize something was lacking in my life. And uh, there was actually one day I was working at the market and I was selling dad's cloths. And, uh, and a beggar came up and, and tried to get money. And I was in the middle of making a sale and, and so I didn't have time for him. I completed the sale and then I went running to find him and I gave him all the money in my pocket. Dad was not impressed. He's not even very pleased. And, uh, you know, that was not his idea of the way to run a business. Uh, but, you know, at that time, I just knew that I felt some kind of bond, some type of kinship with this, uh, with this beggar, with this person that, that did not have everything that I had. You know, this was a person that, that had needs and wants, and, and I just wanted to help. But, um, but anyway, that, that moment passed, and, and so the next thing that came on the horizon for me, and this is coming up at around my 20th birthday, um, you know, this was back in the time when the cities were basically states themselves. And so uh, Assisi was getting into uh, trouble with a neighboring city, Perugia, and uh, we were actually going to go to war. And so I was... Um, I was pretty enamored by the idea of being that knight in shining armor that would sweep some young dam- damsel off her feet that uh, could be, you know, just looked up to by everybody and, and loved by everybody because I was going to go out and save a CC and be their knight in shining armor and do all that kind of good stuff. And uh, so I was, I was thrilled about this opportunity coming up. You know, and this is at a time when if you wanted to be a knight, you had to go buy all your own armor and horse and everything. So, you know, I, I had to outfit myself for war and, uh, and got a horse. Really hadn't had much training, but, uh, but I just felt like with the right equipment and the right everything else, you know, I was bound to be a, uh, a hero of the day. And uh, so I rode out, and I guarantee you I was captured almost immediately. <laughs> They saw me coming, you know, and probably, probably having all the latest equipment and the latest horse and the biggest horse and the best equipment and brand new stuff, uh, about all it did was alert them to the fact that I came from a family of privilege and therefore they could probably get a great big ransom for my skin. So I got captured and thrown in a holding tank, thrown in a prison, thrown in a cell, a dungeon. And basically, they didn't even tell my folks where I was for the first six months. I rotted in that dungeon. This is not like prisons that you guys have here today. This was a cold hole in the ground. Uh, It was underground. There wasn't light. uh, There was no restroom facilities. There were no anything except cold and dark and nasty food to eat. And this was, I I spent a year in that hole. Uh, And after about six months, they finally let my family know I was alive. 
which just meant it took Dad another six months to negotiate what he was willing to pay for my skin. Uh, but I was down there for a year, and that had a huge impact on my health. I never really came out the same person. When I came out of that, uh, my health had been affected so profoundly and so negatively that I never fully recovered from it. You know, I, I still battled with uh, fevers that would come and go, with uh, digestive problems that would come and go. It just, uh, it just changed me, changed my health um, because it was so attacked. I can tell you this, there's more people that left prison dead than left it alive. Uh, it was that kind of environment. So it was a very, very challenging point, but it was also probably the place where I started doing the most self-reflecting. This was the time in my life where, you know, I began to recognize that what I had been doing and what I had been chasing was not um, was not what I wanted for me. It was not who I wanted for me. And so that time in jail or that time in, in that dungeon uh, helped me to really begin to reevaluate and, and try to get a sense of, what I believed was out there that was bigger than me. What, you know, if there was a God, who he was, what he was, what he looked like. And uh, so anyway, a year later, Dad finally bails me out. Uh, I come back, but my heart is not in the party anymore. I'm trying to play with my friends. I'm trying to do the things that, that I'd always done, but, but my heart is just really not in it. And I'm spending more time walking through the countryside, um, you know, I, I ran into a leper one day, and I jumped off my horse and gave him a big kiss, and it was amazing. It was it was like, you know, I finally touched one of God's creatures in a way that was meaningful and, and beautiful. And, you know, and these things started happening to me at this time. Um, just, I'm changing. I'm, I'm getting a, a different sense of self and a different sense of what I'm called to and called for. And... Uh, then, you know, 1202 was the first war. In 1205, another war comes along. And, you know, I'm still not sure where I fit, where I belong. I'm still attracted to this idea of, of being that knight in shining armor. And so I outfit myself again and uh, head out for this war. And I don't even make it to the encampment. Uh, I get one day's journey out, and I'm sitting around the campfire that night. And I hear a voice from God or somebody, you know, that says, why are you doing this? Why are you chasing the servant instead of the master? And I really didn't understand what the voice was trying to tell me at the time. You know, looking back on it from a future perspective, I know it was, it was Jesus talking to me. You know, but at that time, I really didn't understand what it was trying to tell me. But... I turned around and went home. I gave all my, my new armor to a, uh, a young, poor knight. I let him go out and, you know, seek his own uh, glory and honor on the battlefield. Uh, and I turned around and went back. And from that point, um, I really knew that my life was being called in a different direction. Uh, I was really trying to find God at this point. I was really trying to uh, to determine how I should then live. Uh, what should be, you know, just just my path, my walk, my way of engaging in life. Because being a rich man's son was not doing it. That was not what I felt that I wanted to do or felt called to do. And it was getting old and there just was uh, no meaning there anymore. So... 
you know, at this point, I'm about 24 years old, something like that. And I'm, I'm, as I'm walking through the country on a daily basis, I'm actually going to old chapels, old Catholic churches, and spending time in prayer and spending time seeking God's face and, and trying to, uh, to see what it is there that I believe and, and who it is that I believe. And as I was praying in uh, a little chapel outside of Assisi one day, San Damiano, um, I was praying to the crucifix, and Jesus spoke to me. And, and he actually said, I want you to repair my church. As you can see, it's in ruins. And, wow, you know, I couldn't believe it. You know, I had a calling. And so <laughs> this is going to show you just how broken I am. My, my attempt to help the priest rebuild the chapel, my approach to doing that was to go back and steal a bolt of cloth from my dad's store and sell it and bring the money and offer it to the priest as a way to pay for the restorations needed for the chapel of San Damiano. San Damiano. And uh, so when I told the priest how I got the money, he gave it back to me. He wouldn't take it. And it really upset me. I didn't get that. I had just brought gold coins, you know, to this guy to help him rebuild his church, and he won't take it. Uh, so I threw the gold on the floor and left. You know, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, you know what? If he didn't want the money, fine. Then, you know, that's fine. I was out of there. And, uh, of course, you know, I knew that Dad by this time had figured out what was going on. So I went and hid in the cave for about a month. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I didn't want to come back and face Dad, and, and, and I didn't see any reason to go face the priest because, you know, he didn't want my money either. You know, so I hadn't really figured out um, where my place was at this point. But eventually I came down out of the cave, went back to the town, and uh, Dad hauled me before the city council and basically demanded that uh, I give up my family inheritance. And it was, yeah, yeah. But it's okay. You know, because as we're going through the legal proceedings, um, I actually, as we got in the middle of them, I heard the bigger calling. Let me just put it that way. I heard the bigger calling. And in the middle of the courtroom, I took off all my clothes, took all the money, I laid it all at my dad's feet and said, you're no longer my father. And that was the end of my relationship with my earthly father. You know, another situation that I'm not that proud of that uh, I think I could probably have found a better way to handle, but that's the way I handled it at the time. Uh, I don't think he and I were really going to resolve our relationship. It was pretty broken at that point. Um, but uh, that's what happened. And so from then on, you know, I knew who my father was at that point. My father was God, and that's who I was chasing, and that's who uh, that's where I wanted to go, and and what I wanted to do, and so I uh, I left there, and the bishop that was overhearing the proceedings actually gave me this old cloak and belt, and uh, and I put them on, and that became my new garb, my new uh, my new clothes clothing, and. Um, what I did from that point, I went for the next two years, I would go around Assisi and I would buy or I would find stones to actually take back to the chapel at San Damiano to re rebuild and repair the walls there. And so one stone at a time, 
I repaired that chapel. And not only that one, but there are about three or four others in the neighborhood that over the two years, uh, I rebuilt them stone by stone by stone. And then I finally figured out that Jesus maybe had a little more global message for me than rebuilding this specific church. Because in 1208, I was listening to Mass at one of the the little chapels, St. Mary's, that I had helped rebuild. And the priest was talking uh, from the book of Matthew about the Great Commission. You know, go ye therefore and preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was like a light bulb came on. You know, this was what I was here to do. This is what I had been called to do. You know, to come be a messenger for Christ. To come be um, that, that, that attraction point for him. And, uh, and so for the next year, uh, I just I went out preaching to all the peasants, all the lower class uh, people, because I only wanted to work with the poor. I only wanted to work with the, the lepers and the poor people, the ones that the marginalized, the ones that had nobody speaking for them. Those are the people that I wanted to connect with, you know, that I really wanted to, to touch and make a difference in their life. And um, so you know, I, I did this. And by the end of the year, I actually had 11 or 12 other guys that were following me. Uh, so <laughs> we decided to, uh, to go to Rome and see if we could start our own order. And, uh, you know, it's pretty crazy, you know, with only 12 of us. And we did. We went to Rome, and, and I've, I've got the, uh, the document that I put together um, it's the, the primitive rule. It's the, uh, the first set of uh, uh, pages of what it is that, that we believe and we were choosing to, uh, to use as our, our guide to our ministry. And I want to read that to you in a minute. But, um, but we went to Rome to talk to the Pope to see if he would bless us, to see if he would make us officially recognized as an order of the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, the good news is I had a couple of other bishops that were willing to speak for me and uh, encouraged the Pope to do so. The Pope was not very impressed. Uh, the Pope basically said that, you know what, why don't you come back when, uh, when God has blessed you with a little bit more in the way of numbers and a little bit more in the way of money. And, uh, you know, and once he's blessed you as such, we'll make you official. But, uh, but he did make us, at this point in 1209, he made us informal um, which was good enough because with the informal uh, recognition from the church and from the Pope, they tonsured us, which means they, they cut the little circle of hair out. And that meant that we couldn't be tried for heresy, which was a big thing and a good thing. Um, you know, so, so we, got, uh, we got our new haircuts and uh, we headed back home. And, you know, it wasn't a year later that the Pope had a dream and in the dream, he saw me holding up um, one of the, the church in uh, Rome, um, and it was the main church in Rome. And so, obviously, it was a dream because it had me holding up the church. But he decided that if God was going to send him a dream like that, he better go ahead and recognize us formally. So at that point, a year later, the Pope recognized the Franciscan order formally. And this was the first of three orders that I founded. Uh, this was the, the order for men, the Franciscan order. And then uh, over the next couple of years, Claire 
who was uh, Claire of Assisi, she was a member of another very wealthy family in Assisi, decided to come join me, and the poor Claires were formed, and that was the second order, and it was an order for women. And uh, with the uh, with the poor Claire order, uh, the ladies had their their place, and then not long after that, uh, formed an order for for secular people, people that wanted to be um, stay in the world, not take a vow, not enter into uh, you know a church setting or, or enter into a, a monastic setting, uh, but actually wanted to keep their lives out in the real world and uh, but but follow along with our precepts and so you know that's what happened we formed an order it, today it's called the secular franciscans and uh, you know so so i formed three orders uh, in my time period so you know that was uh that was that was amazing and what was really crazy was how fast it began to grow um over the next few years, it just it grew and grew and grew, and we had so many followers and so many people. I could barely keep up with it all, and you know, I really wasn't signing up for that much management. I really did not want to be, you know, trying to manage, trying to to write rules and everything else to govern uh, how we were going to live. Uh, I was really just trying to uh, to carry the message of Christ, and that was all that I wanted to do, and. Um, so little by little, um, we did that. I kept trying to leave town. I kept trying to uh, to find a way to get out into the world to carry God's message. And almost every year, I got on a boat or you know or tried to take an, a trip to another country to carry God's message. And every year, because of health uh, or because of a boat wreck, uh, I got sent back. Uh, either the boat failed or I failed. And had to turn around and come back, and it just—it uh, was difficult. It was a challenge, um, you know. But that was—that was me and my health at the time. It was just—it was not—it um, was not good. Um, but in 1219, I actually did something that um, that I think was pretty amazing. In 1219. Um, you know, the Crusades were going on at this time. The Crusades covered over a 100 years. And uh, the Crusades were the Christians fighting against the Muslims. And so this, the Fifth Crusade was in swing at this time. And I had this thought that if I could go and talk to the Sultan of Egypt, that very possibly uh, I could get him to convert to Christianity. And if he could feel that love, if he could feel that connection point that I have with my God that it could change everything. And so um, I actually kind of had an ulterior motive. My idea was either convert the sultan or maybe he would kill me and I would become a martyr. And either way, that would work greatly because in my mind, being a martyr for Christ was just a beautiful thing. You know, what could be more fun? And, uh, yeah, that was kind of crazy. But... uh, but you know, it just—I just wanted to—I just wanted to emulate Christ every way I could. I wanted to give my life for Him. You know, I wanted to do it in every possible way that I could. That was the the driving impetus behind me was just that sense of connection with Him and trying to uh, 
trying to, to be the person that he would most have me be. So anyway, in 1219, and at this point I'm 30 years old, um, I actually managed to get through the Christian lines, get back to the Sultan of Egypt. I get to, uh, to sit down and talk with him and have words with him. You know, nothing really happened uh, for sure. Uh, I can't tell you that anything happened while I was there. But, um, you know, but it was, it was good. It was nice. And some people do say that on his deathbed, he did get baptized or make a confession, the Sultan of Egypt. So who knows? Maybe the words that I said actually uh, uh, accounted for something. Maybe they uh, touched his heart in some way. But, uh, but that, was, that was my big opportunity to get out and get away. Um, you know, and, and touch another culture and have a chance at representing God in the world. So, you know, now we're at about 1220. I'm back in Italy. And at this point, I'm only about six years from my death because um, I passed in 1226. So, you know, I am uh, I'm back in Italy. And the, the highlight here in 1221, I, I crafted and created something that is still around today. And it's a nativity scene. I, I put together the first nativity scene. I don't know if you're aware of that. But uh, in 1221, I, uh, I just, I was so caught up in doing anything that, that made me feel connected uh, to Jesus and to, uh, to his time on earth. Uh, I just, I got a, you know, a, a manger and I put straw in it and I put a baby in it. And I went and got a donkey and an ox and put them side by side. And then I called the people in the community to come and, uh, you know, and we had Christmas service and had mass uh, right there at the nativity scene. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful. It was it was fun to uh, to celebrate our Lord in that way and just feel a sense of his presence in that way. And evidently it, uh, you know, it lasted because you guys still do nativity scenes today. So how crazy is that? Um, 1224, 1224, I was up on a mountaintop, I was fasting, I was preparing for a feast, and I was in prayer and fasting, this 40-day fast, and I got well into it, and I was blessed, I, um, I had a vision and the vision was of an angel on a cross. It was a seraphic angel, which is a six, six-winged angel. And the vision gave me the stigmata. Uh, the stigmata are the five woundings of Christ. And so the nail hole in each hand and in each foot and the spear hole in the side. Uh, the angel gave me the stigmata during that vision. And... It was, uh, actually I understand I'm the first person to ever receive the stigmata. There have been others since then, but I was the first. Uh, but it was also probably the beginning of the end for me. This had a, uh, a very real impact on my health. Uh, I never, you know, I had always struggled with my health ever since the time in the dungeon. And, uh, and so this was, this was like the beginning of the end. I began to get real sick at this point. I uh, went to many doctors in many cities and really could not get cured. And I passed two years later uh, in 1226. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled. 
if I can do it without being prideful in any way, I am thrilled that I had the opportunity to walk the face of this earth. I am thrilled that I had the opportunity to, um, uh, to do some things and make some changes and touch some lives uh, in a way that's, that's meaningful. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to put together, you know, an order of Franciscans and, uh, um, and the secular order of Franciscans and, uh, and do some things that, uh, that changed lives and touched lives. And, um, you know, and I'm thrilled that uh, both the stigmata and the uh, nativity scene, you know, are, are things that I was able to bring to the worship of Christ that, uh, that are still here today. And that's been, you know, that's been a comfort and a blessing. So, you know, today as we close, there's just uh, three things that I want to share with you that I think um, most represent my heart. Um, there are things that, that most represent what I was trying to accomplish. And um, who I wanted to draw attention to. For me, Jesus was everything. For me, the love of Jesus was everything. Um, nature is the first place where it was easiest for me to see this. Nature was a mirror image of God. It was a reflection of God's handiwork. You know, as I got on your internet last night, I was looking up the number of species of animals and the number of species of birds and the number of species of insects. I had no idea the numbers were nearly as high as they were. There's like 900,000 species of animals on the planet. And they're still discovering new animals. Uh, They're still discovering new species. It's amazing. To me, you know, this, this may seem... I don't know how this seems to you, but to me, that's just a natural, it's, it's, a, it's a guarantee that God loves us because he has made this such a fascinating playground for us. He has made this earth, this place that we get to live, reflect so much awe and wonder and beauty. I mean, how can I look at that many different types of animals? How can I look at that many colorful, beautiful, crazy, you know, animals and birds and insects and not realize that they were put there to, uh, to increase my sense of awe, to increase my sense of wonder, to be able to walk through life and see a reflection of how much God cares because why else would he spend so much time creating so many different animals to... Uh, to make this a beautiful place to live, you know, not to mention the vegetation, not to mention just uh, everything about this earth is so complex and so beautiful and, and so, so amazing. You know, you walk through nature, you look around, if our eyes are open, we see something that, uh, that makes us smile. You know, I actually... Uh, I'm reminded of something that Dave said one time when he was telling the story of Marion and the praying mantis. You know, how do you walk up to that uh, that screen, you know, window screen, and see the praying mantis there, cocking his head, looking back at you, and not get a smile on your face and find a sense of wonder? And to me, that's the uh, that was the point of nature.
that was what nature was. It reminded me of how much God loved us, and it reminded me of how much he cared that he would spend so much time and so much effort making this an incredibly beautiful, wonderful place for us to exist in. So that's the, uh, that's the first one. The second one is this. The second one is a scripture. And uh, this is a scripture that, for me, um, shares the real nature of Christ, the Christ that I was trying to um, represent, the, the Christ that I was trying to follow. Because, like I said, for me, humility and poverty were the key elements of um, what I believed we were to chase and to do. That was that was that almost sums up um, my ministry, you know, and my approach to ministry was poverty uh, and humility. So I want you to listen to this passage of Scripture. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, that that sums up what for me is um, what I was trying to live, what I was trying to be. That sums up for me what it is I was trying to put together with my Franciscan order. Um, I wanted us to be that kind of humble, caring person. I wanted us to represent to the world, to others, the love of Christ and allow them to see it, to touch it, to experience it. And, um, you know, and that scripture just, uh, that gives me, that gives me the best visual, um, of who Christ was and what he was and what I was chasing. You know, I'm out of time this morning. Um, there, was, uh, there was another story uh, and, uh, and another poem that I was going to read, but you can read it on your own. Inside your bulletin, there is the canticle of Brother Sun and Sister Moon. And, you know, it's, it's me celebrating nature. It's me celebrating... Um, who God is and how how He is reflected in all of nature, and so you know, I saw Brother Sun and Sister Moon. I saw Brother Fire. Uh, even my poor health uh, and my pains. I referred to as Brother and Sister Pain. Uh, you know, because it was just it was my way of finding a connection point with God through every aspect of my life. Um, so. Um, so take a look at that. Read the poem on your own time. Um, 
you know, there's so many other things that we could do and, and that I'd love to celebrate with you. But uh, but I want to close with uh, with this prayer that has my name on it. Uh, that is not my prayer. I wish it was, but uh, but it so captures uh, what I love and and who I was trying to be. Um, so, if you would just bow your heads, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Thank you for being here this morning. I pray that as you go through your week, you find the opportunity to... uh, to see God in your surroundings, to see God in nature, to see God in the eyes of the person that you come in contact with, to see God just reflected anywhere and everywhere you look, even in the hardships and the difficulties, as well as in the good times. I pray that you find Him and that He makes Himself very aware to you. Thank you for being here this morning, and let's stand and pray out.